hypothetical Joe is a brand new Christian. He's excited. The sky is a bluer blue, and the grass is a greener green. He can't wait to go to church that Sunday and worship the Lord. Joe arrives in church with great enthusiasm, and immediately he gets hit with all the duties that a good Christian must do in order to be a good Christian. He's told that he must attend three to four church meetings every week. People tell him that he must spend every morning in personal devotions and every evening in family devotions because he's the spiritual head of the family. He must give 10% of his income to the church. The church expects Joe to enroll his children in the youth programs, which results in him being out two more nights a week. Joe must serve on several committees, which meet at night, so now he's out four nights a week. He should be witnessing to his neighbors and serving on a church outreach team. Soon Joe discovers that he really must dress a certain way and act a certain way to be a good Christian. Christianity has a look and a lifestyle, and he is expected to look and live the way other Christians expect him to look and live. Even his loyalty to a political party is now expected. Joe is in bondage. He is guilt-ridden and rule-bound. Joe calculates that he would get about two hours of sleep a night if he did everything he was expected to do according to everyone else. Joe is headed for a spiritual breakdown, trying to live up to the expectations of others. The joy of the Lord is now a spiritual mirage. He is serving the Lord, but not loving it. He tries to do it all, but feels guilty every time he can't. Everybody puts on a good face and looks the part of a good Christian at church, so Joe feels like he must be the only one who struggles to be what he should be. What he doesn't realize is that he is now as miserable as many other Christians around him, so he fits right in with the church. The church has succeeded in another spiritual abortion. Oh, I don't mean that Joe has lost his salvation. I mean that the gospel has been aborted in Joe's life. The gospel means good news. What is good news about such bondage? Grace has been aborted in favor of law. You see, my friends, we abort grace when we live by law. Now, there is absolutely nothing wrong with many of the items I have listed which our mythical Joe is expected to do. It is that they become regulations defining who is a good Christian and who is not a good Christian. They become markers. Expectations soon become requirements designed to produce spiritual life or prove it. Christianity becomes about performance instead of about relationship. My friends, the Christian life is a relationship, not a set of duties and obligations. When we make our relationship with Christ, 
into a set of regulations and expectations, we perform a grace abortion. This is the situation that Paul found himself in at Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. The first lesson we learn is that grace must be practiced to be real. Galatians 2, 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? I saw a cartoon in which a critical person is standing beside a timid friend and philosophizing about life. The critical person says to his timid friend, If I were in charge of this world, I would change everything. The timid friend replies rather meekly, uh, That wouldn't be easy. Like, where would you start? The critical person, without any hesitation, looks back at his friend and retorts, I would start with you. Our partisan political culture has created a climate where many are like our critical friend in the cartoon. They are quick to tell you what is wrong with you and everyone else if you give them a chance. And often, even when you try not to give them a chance, they will gladly tell you what is wrong with you and everyone else. Attack mode is in. Grace is out. The sad reality is that Christians fall into this attack mode Christianity, which defines the faith by what we do, who we vote for, and how we look. Paul faced a similar situation in Antioch. He had returned from Jerusalem with Barnabas after the conference with the other leaders, delighted that the apostles could all agree on the gospel of grace. Soon, Peter arrives for a visit. Perhaps it's a goodwill gesture on his part, and he's welcomed into the church of Antioch. When Peter arrives, he finds a community of believers, both Jew and Gentile, which would be considered rather liberal compared to the more conservative Christians in Jerusalem. The lifestyle and customs of the Jerusalem church were much more rigid in their expectations. Paul calls them the party of the circumcision. The church at Antioch had disregarded the Jewish dietary customs and regulations. These were traditions which the rabbis had ingrained into every Jew as necessary for spirituality. They were good regulations. There was nothing inherently evil about them. However, the Christians in Antioch did not follow these convictions, 
that other Christians followed. They did not see them as important for their spiritual lives and did not follow the same cultural expectations that the Christians in Jerusalem followed. Peter immediately joins in with the Christians in Antioch. He, too, disregards those cultural regulations about Jews and Gentiles eating together. Peter is freed from these expectations and eats regularly with the Gentile Christians. The Greek construction indicates that this was a continuing practice for Peter during his stay in Antioch. Then something happens to destroy this cozy relationship. A group of Christians arrives from Jerusalem. They claim to represent the Apostle James. Their message is simple. They are there to verify reports that Peter and other Jewish Christians are eating with the Gentile Christians. Now this seems like a silly thing to us today, but it was very important to the conservative Christians from the Jerusalem church back then. To them it was a marker of spirituality. The Christians from Jerusalem are much more concerned about this conduct because it undermines their own convictions about what real Christians do and how they live. It also compromises their ability to witness to other Jews who are offended by the liberal convictions of the Christians in Antioch. They may have had an even more serious concern. We know that the Jewish zealots, a conservative political party in Judaism, were forming again in Judea to fight the Romans. The zealots were a militant political party who were known to murder prominent Jews who cooperated with Gentiles. The Christians in Jerusalem may have argued that the Christians in Antioch were jeopardizing the security of the Christians in Jerusalem. Whatever the reasons, we don't know them, we can only speculate, these Jewish Christians believe strongly that true Christians followed the dietary restrictions of the law, so you were a false Christian if you do, did not follow these dietary rules. Peter gave in to the pressure. He separated from his Gentile friends and stopped eating with them. He may have reasoned that this was a different issue than the one they had discussed before, which dealt specifically with circumcision. He agreed that Gentiles did not have to observe the dietary rules of Judaism, but he may have felt that the Jews still did. He certainly wants to avoid offending his conservative friends from Jerusalem, so he succumbs to the pressure to follow their convictions about the Christian life. Peter didn't understand that his actions were more far-reaching than he expected. If Peter and the other Jews had done what they did privately out of personal convictions for themselves alone, then Paul may not have rebuked them. However, they sought to impose those rules on others as proof of their spirituality, and this was far more serious than just having personal convictions. 
The apostles agreed to disagree about all those convictions about dietary scruples as long as they agreed that they were not necessary for salvation. But that's a hard line to maintain in our lives. Sooner or later, our personal convictions creep back into our attitudes about spirituality, salvation, and other Christians. We begin to impose on others what we think a good Christian should be and do. Paul rebukes Peter publicly. Now, why didn't he rebuke him privately, like Jesus said was the first step in Matthew 18? Paul is following a principle that he will later teach in 1 Timothy 5.20. Leaders who sin publicly should be rebuked publicly because their sin affects others. Individuals who sin privately should be rebuked privately. The degree to which sin is public is the degree to which it must be addressed publicly for the good of all. Why did Paul condemn Peter so sharply? He did it for at least three reasons, I think. The first reason is Peter's hypocrisy in verses 12 and 13. The word translated hypocrisy means play-acting, to put on a show for others. The root meant to answer from under and referred to actors who spoke from behind or under a mask. The, as the actor's job was to explain the drama by playing a role so that everything he did was in keeping with his character in the production. Peter ate with the Gentiles until these men from Jerusalem arrived, and then he refused to eat with the Gentiles. He was a hypocrite, a person who pretends to be something he or she is not, a two-faced person. Peter was pretending to be someone he was not. Either he was pretending to be something he was not when he was eating with the Gentiles, or he was pretending to be someone he was not when he refused to eat with the Gentiles. Either way, he was a hypocrite. There are all kinds of hypocrites. There are political and social hypocrites. There are philosophical and religious hypocrites. But the worst hypocrites are the gospel hypocrites. Peter was a gospel hypocrite for distancing himself socially from the Gentiles and thereby compromising the essence of the gospel. The second reason why Paul condemned Peter so sharply is that he was leading people astray in verse 13. Leaders lead people astray by their actions, not just their words. Our actions have consequences for others. Here, Peter's actions lead the other Jews in the church at Antioch to deny fellowship with their other brothers and sisters. What had been a non-issue between them has now become a source of separation, of segregation, because of Peter. Sadly, even Paul's close friend and missionary partner Barnabas was led astray and joined the group separating themselves from the others. Peter's hypocrisy carried Barnabas into hypocrisy. How Barnabas's 
hypocrisy must have stung Paul deeply. Barnabas had been the first to welcome Paul into the church. Barnabas and Paul had planted churches in southern Galatia on their first missionary journey, enduring hardship and struggle together for the gospel. They would not partner, however, on Paul's second missionary journey. Luke states that the breakup of their partnership occurred over John Mark in Acts 15. However, this episode in Antioch may well have factored into the fracture. The hypocrisy of Barnabas eroded Paul's trust in his partner. Their close relationship came to an end not long after this event in Antioch. The Gospel proclaims that there are no racial, social, cultural, ethnic, and gender barriers. Galatians 3:28 and 29. The Gospel is the great equalizer. All people stand equally at the foot of the cross as one in Christ. Gospel hypocrites pay lip service to this transforming truth but their partisan lifestyles belie the good news that they preach. They were compromising the gospel in verse 14. We talk a good gospel, but do we walk a good gospel? Do we stay on or stray from the gospel path? Paul publicly rebuked Peter and Barnabas because he saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel in verse 14. Galatians 2.14 is the only place in the New Testament where we find this verb, we're not straightforward. The word comes from two Greek roots. The first meaning standing straight up, and the second meaning foot. It means to stand erect on your feet, to stand up, on your feet. In other words, Paul says that we are not to waver or stumble as we walk. We are to walk straight. They were not walking straight on the path to the truth of the gospel. They have taken the wrong road. They have strayed or stumbled from the path. The expression truth of the gospel refers back to the same phrase that was used in Galatians 2, verse 5. To walk straight toward the truth of the gospel is our goal. The danger is that we get off track. We get distracted by life. The twists and turns, the rocks and bumps of life cause us to stumble. We take detours that compromise the truth of the gospel by our personal preferences and legalistic convictions. We lose our way, causing others to go astray. Peter was performing a gospel abortion. The gospel of God's grace was just forming its embryo stage in these people's lives. Any compromise of the gospel during its embryo stage could easily abort the message of grace. We can quickly turn people into legalistic and moralistic religious people through our compromise of the gospel by our actions. Jerry Bridges writes that the message in many churches 
goes like this. God loves you, and people have a wonderful plan for your life. Grace killers try to control other lives and make everyone conform to their personal convictions. We are very good at intimidating others through guilt and fear in the church. Far too many Christians are living lives out of guilt and fear instead of love and gratitude for God's grace. Chuck Swindoll tells the story about some missionaries who had returned to the United States a number of years ago from the mission field because of a jar of peanut butter. The particular place where they were serving did not have access to peanut butter. So this family made some arrangements with friends back home to send them peanut butter every so often. The problem was that the other missionaries had decided that it was a mark of spirituality to go without peanut butter on the mission field. They had renounced peanut butter for Christ, which was fine, except that they had decided that peanut butter should be renounced by every missionary as a sign of spiritual maturity. This missionary family did not agree, so they enjoyed the peanut butter in their own home. However, others found out about it, and the pressure to give peanut butter up for Christ became so intense that they left the mission field over peanut butter. You say, how silly, how ridiculous. But my friends, what are our peanut butters today? What private convictions are we imposing on others as a mark of spirituality? Do we ever bring guilt and pressure on others to conform to our standards and our expectations? To be real, Grace must be practiced in our everyday lives, not just taught in our sermons. Secondly, grace must be accepted to be real in verses 15 to 19. Paul arrives at the central question of his letter to the Galatians in these verses. How can humans be accepted by God? Can our best efforts gain God's favor? Every church faces the temptation to slide into practical Pelagianism, that is, measuring righteousness by the best we can do apart from God's enabling grace. A performance mentality seeps into our church life even as we preach Christ's gospel. Do we earn God's approval by what we do, or does God grant his acceptance because of what he has done? In order to practice grace, we must accept the theological foundations for grace. And there are two theological foundations for grace that Paul discusses in these verses. First, we must accept our justification by faith in verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. 
Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Three vital theological terms leap out of the text, justified, law, and faith. All three terms are significant in the vocabulary of Paul and central to his argument in both Galatians and his longer epistle, the epistle to the Romans. Paul begins his theological argument with a general principle. The general principle is that no human can ever be justified by works of law. You cannot be right with God by rules and regulations. Three times in this one verse, Paul tells us we are not justified by the works of the law. The preposition by emphasizes the source of our justification. Paul did not have a convenient term like legalism to describe the issues he faced, so he used this expression to make his point. Legalism is any attempt to justify oneself by obedience to the law. Now Paul is not just talking about the Mosaic law, because he uses the word law without the definite article in the Greek text. It is not the law, but law. Paul stresses the qualitative nature of God's law. He expands his thought in Romans, where he uses the same clause, works of law, to describe the Gentiles who are accountable to God's law without possessing the Mosaic law. All attempts to curry God's favor by law-keeping, whether written or unwritten, do not work. Religion's temptation is to drift toward works righteousness. In our pride, we determine to control our destiny by what we do instead of accepting what he has done. We develop selective righteousness in our churches as a means of quantifying holiness, an unwritten code of conduct. A performance mentality grips our faith as we parade our works of law before God and others. Then Paul makes a theological assertion. The theological assertion is that we are justified by faith alone. The term justification is a legal term. It means to be acquitted. It means to be declared righteous. The term justified occurs three times, and each time it is passive. We do not justify ourselves, but are justified by another person. God declares us right as we stand before him. He justifies us. In God's courtroom, justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Now listen carefully. Justification means that I am declared righteous even though I am not righteous. Justification means that I am declared righteous even though I am not righteous. How can God do that? 
He does it because he credits my sins to Christ and Christ's righteousness to me. All the sins I have ever committed and all the sins I will commit are credited to Christ's account. I do not pay for them. In fact, I cannot pay for them because God has declared me just and I can never be tried for those sins again. I have just made some incredible statements which are the foundation for the Christian life. What do you have to do to be right with God? Nothing. Just accept what he has done for you by faith. All you have to do is trust him for your righteousness instead of trying to earn your righteousness by what you do. Now do you see why it is so critical that you do not add anything to the gospel? If we add anything to the gospel, we will abort the gospel. Because as long as we are working to achieve our righteousness, we cannot accept his righteousness. Faith means that you commit yourself to accept what he has done for you and stop trying to earn your own way to heaven. Yes, but. I love the yes, buts. Paul anticipates an objection to this whole argument in verse 17. The objection is that if we are declared righteousness by faith, even though we still sin, then we will be encouraging people to sin. Someone might say, yes, but there is no longer any reason to be good. We can do as we please if we have been declared righteous. That objection is the reason so many moralists argue for justification by faith, but sanctification by works. They say we are saved by faith, but now we have to work to achieve holiness, morality, and righteousness. Paul responds by saying that we must accept our justification by faith, and we must accept our sanctification by faith in verses 17 to 19. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Essentially, the question Paul raises is this. If I believe in Jesus Christ, sitting here in church, and so I am justified by him, then I go out and rob a bank. Do I not cause Jesus to be a sinner because he declared me to be righteous? May it never be. No way. This is not true at all, Paul says. I only prove that I am still a sinner. God is not finished remaking me yet. The reason it is not true will be developed more fully in verses 20 to 21, which we will look at in, in the next message. In a nutshell, 
the righteousness God gives to us is a very real righteousness in embryo form. God's righteousness has been conceived in us. We have been born again. Jesus has begun the work of producing in us the righteousness God has declared us to have in Christ. We are in embryo form now what we will be one day when he has done making us what he wants us to be. So don't abort the embryo of new life in Christ by adding good works to the gospel. Resurrecting the law brings misery in verse 18. Many religious people cannot accept Christ's righteousness by faith, so they resurrect the law. They rebuild the law and try to make everyone else conform to it as a barometer of spirituality. But this only produces misery because the purpose of the law only proves me to be a sinner. Every time I look at the law and all that I should be, I realize how far short I come and what a horrible sinner I am. So the law brings misery. The law is like a mirror which shows us what we need to clean up. But soap cleans, not mirrors. Too many Christians are rubbing themselves against the mirror trying to get clean. Resurrecting the law brings misery, but crucifying the law brings life. Verse 19. The Christian died to the law as an attempt to produce righteousness. It is only when we stop our quest to satisfy God with our works that we can enjoy the life we have with God because of his work. A law principle, moralism, undergirds all cultures. Moralism is man's attempt to live for God and is always doomed to fail. So we must die to moralism to live for God. There are two elements of our death to moralism. We die to law-keeping as a way to God, number one, through the law, and number two, through the cross. We die to law through law, but our release from law comes only when we can say with Christ, I have been crucified with Christ. Most translations take that second phrase as part of verse 20, but most Critical Greek texts place the phrase as part of verse 19, Paul's argument here. Being crucified with Christ explains how we can be released from law-keeping to live for God. Many of us Christians play a balancing the books game with God. It's like how we diet. If we eat that great piece of chocolate cake then we must make up for it by going without dinner the next day. In the same way, we seek to be righteous based on a tally sheet. If I sin today, then I must make up for it so that my account will be balanced. So we go through life trying to pay back our debts to God. That's the essence of moralism. 
Well, what is the problem? We can never keep up. And even if we could keep up, then our paybacks would never balance the books because they're not adequate for God anyway. What happens is that we become more and more miserable because the guilt we feel for our sins can never be fixed by our attempts at perfectionism. Until we accept his provision for our sins, we will never be free from our guilt. It's as simple as that, my friends. I can stand here and say to you, you are free. But until you accept his grace, you will never feel free. You keep resurrecting the law, which only condemns you with all of your failures. Moralism teaches that our good works earn God's favor. What we do that is good pays for what we have done that is bad. Moralism expresses religion's path to God. Good people will one day stand before God, and the good they do or did will outweigh the bad they have done, claims the moralist. Sadly, many preach moralism after starting well with grace. The more we push morality, the less we preach grace, because moralism nullifies grace. We abort grace when we live by law. Benjamin Franklin, the classic moralist, set out in life to achieve moral perfection through his little book of 13 virtues. For each virtue, he lined out seven columns, one for each day of the week. He would self-evaluate these virtues daily as he sought to be a better man. But at the age of 79, he had to admit that he had failed. The paradox of moralism is the better we try to be, the worse we prove to be. The gospel of grace tells me that I become a Christian by renouncing my faith in my goodness to place my faith in Christ's goodness alone. I must accept that I am a sinner to believe in Christ as my Savior. If I return to stressing my moral goodness, I nullify Christ's grace and prove to be a worse sinner than before. There must be no mixing of my goodness with Christ's goodness to earn God's approval. To follow Christ, we must renounce moralism. The paradox of moralism is the more we preach morality, the less we preach Christ, leading to greater immorality. Moralism creeps into our culture wars preaching. In our striving to see righteousness permeate our society, we slide into moralistic preaching, implicitly communicating that we can create a moral world without Christ. Slipping into moralism minimizes Christ. The solution to the world's immorality is the goodness of Christ, 
not the morality of humanity. Unless people give up on their goodness to accept Christ's goodness, there will never be social goodness. Our culture will never be transformed by preaching moralism. Good works, truly good works, flow from changed hearts. Society is changed by regeneration, not legislation. The gospel is the most transformative power the world has ever seen. So let's preach the gospel, not moralism.